This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Sivan Rahav Meir from the Holy Land, a renowned broadcaster as well as teacher of Judaism and all-around media personality in Israel. How are you, Sivan? Baruch Hashem, thank you. How are you? Doing wonderful, thank God. Our listeners may not realize, but we've been trying for many months to schedule this, and <laughs> I feel like every time I've uh, been trying, I keep reading another article about you in another paper or another publication, and it keeps, <laughs> it's like a, a, a sign from above that I should keep trying until we get together. So I'm very, very excited that we're finally able to connect uh, on this wonderful day. Great. Yeah, me too. My kids know they're not allowed to come into this room now for like uh, 45 minutes because I have a very important conversation with uh, Harry from the U.S. So, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, very historical day here too in our house in Jerusalem. Beautiful. I'll have to bring them some treats next time I uh, <laughs> come over there. Uh, so, Sivan, we'd like to, with all of our guests, really just get your story. And, uh, of course, there are many amazing accomplishments that have been publicized about your career and about all of your unique endeavors. But we really want to know where, the, where do you come from? What was your background, your upbringing? Where were you born? Tell us a little bit about your early life. Okay, I was uh, brought up here in Israel, but not in Jerusalem, in a city called Herzliya. It's a big city near Tel Aviv. And I was brought up in a non-observant family, a secular family. And it will sound weird maybe uh, to your listeners. I mean, maybe it's awkward, but here in Israel, I didn't know anyone who's like religious until I was 15, which is, it's, it's not, you know, in Kathmandu somewhere very far away, very, like in a, a very small place with no Jews. I lived here in the Jewish state, but I really, I, I didn't know much about it. I didn't care. And then I started as a very young girl at the age of six or seven, I started interviewing people. It was my hobby. I mean, uh, after a few years, the school became my hobby because I was interviewing for you know, 24-7. That's what I did, asking questions. And then it was, uh, it was you know, published in all kinds of kids' magazines and children's like, newspapers. And I became like a very young uh, um, journalist. And my mom, when people ask her, I mean, what happened? How did she become like a... Baal Tshuva in Hebrew, we say. So she, she used to say, she says, she just finished interviewing all the secular people in Israel. So she had to move forward. <laughs> you know, she started talking to the more from one. And actually, it's true because I really interviewed all the kids in my class and in school, all the teachers, the principal even. And then at the age of 15, I discovered there are more streams, more people it's a very interesting state. You know, we have 8 million people and I think it's 8 million stories and items. So I, I went out, you know, from Herzliya and started, you know, interviewing kids from uh, Kibbutzim and all kinds of villages and settlements. Ethiopian kids, you know, that did Aliyah from Ethiopia and Russian kids from Soviet Jewry and Arab kids, Palestinian kids, all kinds of other attitudes toward life. And it made me, I think, you know, aware of, our bigger story, uh, the bigger Jewish story, I'm, I'm part of it. 
What do you think made you such a curious and inquisitive person as such a young child? I mean, this was just like natural. Was it something from your parents? I mean, I guess kids are curious in general, but they don't usually go around interviewing every person that they meet. What, what was that about you? Yeah, I think I wasn't so successful. The truth is, I realized at the age of six or seven, I'm not so talented in all other fields. You know, all my friends had great hobbies, you know, dancing, painting, sports, you know, arts and crafts, all these uh, activities in the afternoon. And I was a complete failure. I mean, I, I was horrible, you know, when I tried to do these things with them. And, you know, it's true today, too. I'm not so good when it comes to driving, cooking, you know, helping the kids paint the, in, in their notebooks. Uh, so I wasn't really talented, you know, in everything I did. And here I discovered our alphabet, you know, our language. And the teacher taught us how to read and how to write. And it was the, it became like, like a miracle, like a magic for me. I can express myself and can edit my thoughts, you know, just writing them and then afterwards see it again. And I can write things and people will read it in, in a few days. It, it became a magic. I think it's, it's still a magic. So the interviews that you were doing, they were, they were written interviews? You would interview somebody and write down their, their answers? Yeah, in Israel, I think until like the 90s, we had only one channel, like the national channel, channel one. In Hebrew, we say, Arutz Echad. But that's not the most important one in Hebrew, but just to, to say. So we had just one channel. And then it began when I was uh, 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 like six or seven, everything changed, you know, in our media and the communication like map here. So there were cables and there were dozens of foreign channels and they opened like every week, some new channel was opened. So uh, the kids channel and another kids channel and kids shows and magazines. So it became very popular, you know, the there were a lot of opportunities. So they chose me to, like, for example, to interview our uh, former prime minister, uh, Itzhak Rabin of Blessed wow. Memory, and then Shimon Perez of Blessed Memory when I was just nine, you know. And then the Power Rangers came to Israel. <laughs> Are they the, the, of Blessed Memory? What, no, Power my... Rangers. In fact, I just read a story that Power Rangers, Chaim Saban, yeah. a billionaire philanthropist in Los Angeles, just sold the Power Rangers to a major corporation for oh, well, they're alive okay so <laughs> so i interviewed them when they came to israel all kinds of singers and politicians and celebrities and it just happened you know i started living in the studios in the tv studios because israel really changed all the media really changed these days and uh, the truth is some of the teachers they didn't really like it because you know, I started missing, going away. <laughs> I can't come to a class. I have to interview Perez, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So th why didn't you do homework? I mean, uh, the Power Rangers are not so important. So um, yeah, that's my childhood. I think I'm doing it for 30 years. I'm 36 now. So I'm really doing it for, for like 30 years, interviewing, hearing other people's stories and making people understand other point of views and uh, the heritage and the values people can, you know, and advisors they can give us. So that's the only thing I know how to do. Were your parents supportive early on? Yeah, they were very supportive. My mother is a teacher. My grandmother, her mother is also a teacher. And my father was like a manager in some kind of a startup computer company. But um, they both, you know, they didn't push me, you know, you must be a journalist. It's the heritage of, of the family, but they liked it. I mean, the minute they saw, you know, it makes me feel good. It's a positive activity. You know, kids can do crazy things. So being like such a good girl interviewing the whole country, 
they liked it and they helped. Yeah, they helped a lot. But, you know, there's this type of parents where they want their kids to be famous. It's not the story here. Um, journalists, by the way, are not the real celebs. They interviewed a lot of celebrities, but I wasn't the star, you know, I wasn't the item. Right. So at around 15, you said you started exploring Judaism more and you started interviewing all kinds of other people. Where did your journalism career go? Did you take it? Uh, did you go to the IDF? Did you get involved that way? Like, where, where did it go from there? Okay, so basically you can speak about like two parallel paths or ways because, okay, so you became a journalist and you became like religious and, okay, this has nothing to do with this. You know, you can still be a journalist, an objective one. And I kept on, you know, I became Shomer Shabbos, but I still searched for scoops, you know, and, and the exclusive interviews. And for years, that was the situation, you know, yeah, of course, I'm, I, I want to be like a religious person according to the halakha, the Jewish law, but I'm a regular journalist, you know, just like everybody, I, I accept the journalism rules. Um, I think something changed in the last few years. It's not a personal change. You see the world is changing. The media is changing. It took me, uh, it took time to understand the change here. It happened after um, Yehudit, our fifth baby, was born, our, uh, our girl. She's three years old now. But when she was born, I had the time, you know, I was at home, and I just watched the media, and I saw, and your president has a lot to do with it, you know, they don't need us anymore. <laughs> you know, in the past, I used to go to the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, or to our Supreme Court, and I used to cover what's going on there. And people used to wait to hear in the evening, what was going on today in the Knesset, in the parliament, or the judge, what was going on today in the Supreme Court? And I saw they don't need me anymore. Nobody needs me anymore in the middle because um, they speak directly to you, to the audience. You see it, yeah, with Donald Trump, but you see it everywhere. They don't need the media. They need the media in order to say, yeah, fake news. The media is not hear the real truth from me. And I saw that when I come to the Knesset, for example, they don't chase me anymore. For years, they've been chasing me. Oh, please give me an interview. Take a, take a small sentence, a short sentence I said, and I want to see it in the news. I became less and less relevant. I think we all feel it as journalists, and we must reinvent our job to think again about what is journalism. There are many answers. I see my friends doing many things, but you cannot be an objective boring journalist anymore you must think what do you bring to the audience plus the audience you all became journalists the viewers you know the the listeners the readers they're also journalists they all have small camera and they all like uh, produce a lot of content and share it so everything's changing and then i thought okay i don't want to cover the politicians anymore the reality anymore i want to change the reality i want to do something more interesting and then I thought, okay, let's try to take these two elements in my life and let's see if it works out. I mean, to, to combine somehow, take Judaism plus media, especially new media. You know, in Israel, there's this famous like thing, uh, how do you say, when you, you try to take Mentos and Coca-Cola together, do you know this experiment? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. So it explodes. So it's very famous here. You take Mentos, you know, these candies yeah, the candy, and, yeah. Coke, and you put it together. So I said to myself, okay, maybe it will explode. Let's try. Judaism, new media, let's try and see what's going on. And uh, I'm happy to say there's no explosion and, and it's a success. I mean, this is something new. I've been religious journalist for years, but now it's something new in the last like two, three years. I still try. I don't know. You know I don't have you know, the 
right answers, but I try to think about this question. I want to kind of examine each of the two strands in your life, the journalism piece and the Judaism piece, to understand how they then came together. So just first, in terms of the journalism, you were doing print media, were you on television? Like what, what was your role in the, okay. in the years uh, before? I still do it. I work today for years. I work for Channel 2. Channel 2 is like the main news channel in Israel. Just recently, it was divided into two different channels, channels, Channel 12 and Channel 13, but we still provide the news for these two channels. So I worked there for years. I work for the Israeli radio, the IDF radio, Galei Tzahal. It sounds weird, maybe. Uh, you know, why do you have an IDF radio? Is, is it North Korea? But it's a free station. It's something, you know, from our history, the IDF like opened a station and it's a free democratic place and it belongs to the IDF. What can we do? And I work for Yediot Choronot, which is also the largest uh, daily newspaper in Israel. I write there every week. So I, I still do it. I, you know, I didn't quit anything and became a Robertson, but I try to combine. I try to bring Judaism into these places and outside, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, whatever, in order to, again, to examine how can we make Judaism an item, you know, with, with rating and make it interesting. Were you doing all of these things already since you're 15, 16, 18? Like when did you yeah. start doing all this journalistic professional work? Yeah, it became professional at the age of 15, 16. Some, you know, it was a hobby and I was a nice girl, but then I said, hey, I want to, you know, I, I need a salary here. It must be serious. And during high school, I started doing it very, very serious as a correspondent and to host many shows for youth and then for adults and to have a lot of like uh, short pieces, short clips, video clips and items in the news and uh, of course in the radio and yeah, in newspapers. It's, uh, as I said, it's almost 30 years of journalism in all these uh, different fields of the media in Israel, yeah. Did you go to the army or did you, what did you do during that period of time? Yeah, but again, as you can guess, I wasn't just a, was such a warrior. I went to the IDF radio station and I, did, I was there for like a year plus eight months. And from there, you got into television and kept growing. Uh, yeah, I did it before uh, the, the army. Yeah. But after that, yeah, I, I got married, by the way, at the age of like 21. And then, then I became like, uh, I think, uh, more professional in all the, these three places. Yeah. Now, when it comes to your Jewish growth, you said that at around the age of 15, you started, as your mother said, you ran out of <laughs> people in, in Herzliya to interview and went out to the broader public. What do you think it was that touched you in the more religious sector of the population? You know, again, Israel, unfortunately, can be very polarized, especially, I might add, you mentioned that you interviewed Rabin. So I remember that when Rabin was assassinated, and it was a very, very tumultuous and divided time in Israel, probably the most polarized period that, that could be between the more religious elements and the less religious or more secular elements in Israel. That's around the time that you were coming of age. So a person should become more observant in that time, I think is very unusual and surprising. So what was it that really touched you and moved you? Okay, wow, that's a good question. First of all, I don't want to insult the people of Herzliya. It's a great place, and I'm very glad that, you know, that's where I was brought up. But there are other, other people and places, and now... You're asking a hard question because, yeah, it was in the 90s was when our prime minister was assassinated. It's awful to say it, you know, a Jewish person uh, with a kippah, you know, 
a religious person murdered him, killed him, and he did it because, yeah, he thought that's the right thing to do according to Judaism. That's crazy. And I was 15, 16 then, and it can sound again a little bit weird because people usually say, wow, when I discovered Judaism, I saw great things, uh, uh, spiritual things, positive things, exciting things. And I can really say, yeah, this horrible event made me more religious. How can that happen? Okay, yeah, that's crazy. How can that happen? You see such an awful thing. So usually when I was in high school then, our teachers used to say that our democracy is in danger. And they were right, but let's say, I don't think that was the most dangerous thing these days because in the US, you have also experienced tragedies like this, you know, and your democracy is strong and our democracy is strong, different system, but still free places, democratic countries. So I felt the democracy, it's not the real dangerous thing here, okay? Human rights will still be here. And of course, we will go to, uh, to vote uh, every four years and the parliament, nothing's changing. Of course, the tragedy, the democracy is not really in danger. But what's really dangerous here, the real danger is the Jewish elements of our state. You know, we see Israel as a Jewish democratic state. It will still be a democracy, but will it be a Jewish state after, after a Jew person is doing such a thing? And I felt Judaism is in danger. And then I decided I want to take responsibility because I knew nothing about Judaism, but this murderer, okay? I don't know if I want to say his name, okay? Igal Amir, he's still sitting in, the, in jail until his last day, but he knows everything about Judaism. He keeps everything. He knows everything. I know nothing. I can't even answer why what you did is so uh, cruel when it comes from Judaism, of course. Not that it's, it's not legal, of course it's not legal, but I can answer him in his words because I know nothing about my heritage. It's not his, it's mine. And then I started, you know, a journey. I met a few girls, a few fr they became friends. They invited me to see, to experience a real Shabbat, a real Shabbos, the day of rest. I was seven, seven day of the week, the holy day. And I came, you know, and saw, and I fell in love with, uh, with Shabbat. That was the beginning. These girls were not from Herzliya, I'm guessing. Where no. were they from? Uh, they were from two places, Beersheva, Beersheva, the big city in the south of Israel, and from Tekoa, which is a very small settlement in Gush Etzion, yeah. just like in the south of Jerusalem, near our capital city, but a very small place. So I went to Tekoa for one Shabbos, and then for Beersheva, and then again for Tekoa and Beersheva. And then I said, wait, I want to bring Shabbos to Erzeliah and do it in my home too. I don't have to go, go there. One of the moments that really affected my life happened in Versheva. It was Shabbos morning. It was the, you know, the Shabbos meal. And something again, not the typical story about the Shabbos spirit that influenced me. Uh, something else happened. And maybe it will sound funny, uh, but uh, one of the, we sat there, you know, eating and singing and speaking about the Torah and about the Shabbos and the week. And then one of the girls, I think she was like around 12, she came to the table, to the a Shabbos table and she said that the neighbor knocked on the door and asked for a cup of sugar. And she gave her a cup. It's not a religious neighbor at all. <laughs> and she gave her a cup of sugar. And then she came back to the family and asked us, is it okay? Okay. Was it wrong or to give it to her? And it was like an open question. And they all started answering. So the first person said, of course, why do you give her a cup of sugar? She can now bake a cake 
with it in her oven and it's not allowed. We're not doing things like that. You want to rest on Shabbat. We're not making new food, you know. We're not baking things. So with the oven, so what you did, you, you helped her and it's, it's not good to do it on Shabbos. Why did you do it? And then this other sister said, no, who said she's, she wants to bake a cake? Maybe she has a lot of guests and she needs, she's making like a, a 10 cups of, of coffee and she needs a lot of sugar for them. Maybe she bought like a ton of strawberries and she needs a lot of sugar for it. Maybe her son is going back to the army. She's just preparing a bag for him, you know, for the whole week and she needs sugar for that purpose. And there were like many answers there. One of the people said, maybe, maybe you saved her because if you didn't give it, what, what would she do? She, go, she would go to the store and she would buy sugar, which is, of course, it's not something we do on Shabbos. So you saved her. It's good you did it. And I was looking at them laughing, just like I hear you laughing. And I said, wow, these people are crazy. Okay. <laughs> That's crazy. They just, Shabbos is a very nice thing when you see it and eat and rest and you don't go to work. But they're crazy. They think about these elements, about these small details, about this technique, small things about the neighbor. Are you crazy? Are you all nuts? And then Motei Shabbat, you know, after, after Shabbos ended, I went back home and I took the bus from the Sheva to Herzliya. I had time to think. And I remember this moment when I thought, wait a minute, maybe it's so important for them. Maybe there's something bigger than us here. Because if you care about the small details, it means you care about the big thing here. If you have a wedding, you think about the smallest thing, right? About the napkins and the music and the sound and the atmosphere. You think about everything. So maybe if we think about the, the small things in Shabbos, maybe it means something to us. It's holier than us. And I think that's when I decided I want to be part of this crazy group. That's the, that's the story. I told you it's not an exciting one. Oh, I think it's very exciting because... <laughs> Oftentimes, you know, we make the most profound discoveries by perceiving those small details and it touches different people in different ways. But uh, I think it's a wonderful story. How did your friends back in Herzliya react? And perhaps more importantly, how did your parents react when their nice yuppie teenager in Herzliya all of a sudden is getting interested in these foreign religious experiences? Um, first of all, I am very glad that we were great friends earlier, me and my parents, and we're still great friends. I mean, it's, uh, as I said, with the journalism hobby, so the new Jewish hobby, also uh, they didn't say like, we don't allow you to do anything. They were a little, I think, frightened or intimidated because, not because of me, and not because of the new friends I discovered, because of the media, because unfortunately, the Israeli media tweets Judaism in a very negative way. Really, I'm sad that's the situation, but we treat Judaism as a problem, okay? We cover it only when it bothers us, when it interrupts our life. So my parents were a little, you know, they were afraid, okay, you're going to join this, this extreme group. But the minute you explain Judaism is not a problem, I think Judaism is a solution. The media, I don't want to say, you know, fake news, I guess it won't impress you if I use this <laughs> expression, yeah, but... um. I think the media here is, is, is wrong and it makes people think bad things about their identity, their heritage. So I had to explain to my parents that it's not what you see in the Knesset, in the studios, in all the new, in the news. It's something completely different. And the minute they met my husband and his great family, I think it became easier, you know, the, the new thing. 
we're still speaking about it. How come the real Jewish life, they're so different than what you see in the news? But that's another problem. But in the, the private aspect, in our family, it went, Baruch Hashem, it went, it was very successful. And they, they you know, now when they have grandchildren, so of course they're uh, obsessed with them and we don't speak about it anymore. You know, first we spoke about ideologies. Now, now it's philosophical. Now it's yeah, practical. Yeah, great. Exactly. Have your parents or anyone in your family been influenced in any way in terms of their own relationship to Judaism? I think so, yeah. They are much more aware, you know. They, they know more. They do more, maybe because of the grandchildren. Sure. They, uh, they come to them, sometimes even on, on Shabbos, and they take them out. They know everything about what's kosher, exactly the different types of uh, kashrut, you know, the right uh, type of food we eat. And they know how to say, like, uh, the blessings and prayers with them. So they're much more into it. I can say you that personally, they changed their life completely. And I understand them. Uh, they come from a different generation in Israel, the generation that really built our country. They did a lot these days. And they believe that they're building a new type of Jew, a very, like, a, a national one, Zionist one. And, of course, it's, it's, it's positive. I think the Torah must be a part of it. But I think that's the mission of our generation to fix it or to add these supplements to the Israeli secular identity. I think it's like an historical movement here. You said earlier, and I want to now come back because we've discussed your journalism and your religious sort of uh, renaissance. You said that you've reached a point, even just in the last couple of years, where you have you know, tried to combine the Mentos with the Coca-Cola, where you have created that sense of integration. What specifically have you done to make that happen? What projects have you uh, developed? What have you done within the media that mm. has sort of promoted religious identity or broadcast your own journey uh, to the public? So I started writing about it. I saw that in the new world, the new media world, people are just telling everything about their personal life, okay? They post their kids and the, what they bake and what they do and what they eat and where they go and where, when they fly, you know, they all do check out Gurion <laughs> Airport, the JFK Airport. So I said, okay, I don't want my private life to be part of it, but I do want to use this tool. Can I use it in order to promote something else, not me? And then I said, wait a minute, Rashi has no uh, Facebook page, okay? And the Rambam, the Maimonides, you say it in English, he's not on, on in the Instagram. And when you think of uh, Einstein and the Baal Shem Tov and all these the, the, um, smart Jews, that, you know, Jews you should know, but you can't interview. Okay? That's, uh, another, uh, That's another series. Yeah. <laughs> so they are all, they're not there. You know, when you, when you check the feed, you see, only see Trump, Netanyahu, and I don't know, um, what's the name of this? Ben Shapiro. You only see... <laughs> All these, uh, all the types of people. I thought you were going to say the Kardashians, but okay. Yeah, okay. I didn't want to say it. You said it. But um, <laughs> you see all these types. Okay, it's nice. They all have the right to say what they want. But we are, uh, you know, in Hebrew, we say Amasefer, the people of the book. Uh, we belong to the book. The book belongs to us. We're so oriented, you know, to read and write and learn for thousands of years. And now, no books anymore. There's Facebook, but we don't open the real book. So how can we bring all these treasures into the feed. And I started writing one daily short post about the parasha, the weekly portion we read in the Torah. It's the Jewish pulse. I just started writing something very short because 
I know to like, you know, bring grading when it comes to news. I know, to, I know how to make like, stuff interesting. That's what I'm doing for 30 years, making people here in the Supreme Court. We can be there for five hours. Now let's tell you in one minute what really happened. What's the most in- interesting thing that happened? Netanyahu can speak for an hour, and I must find the headline. So now let's do it with, with the Torah, with our uh, holy text. Let's try and bring them into the feed. And it, I just started, and I was amazed. You know, it was not only the amount of uh, talkbacks and feedbacks, it was the quality. You know, people started saying things that are much more meaningful. You know, I, I've been a journalist for years, but I never really touched them. And suddenly it became more interesting, and people began to react and to suggest new ideas and to send me materials, and I had to start reading all these, their ideas, and it began in a very private idea. I just sat here at home and, and wrote short pieces. And there was a book, which is now a bestseller here in Israel. And it was translated into English. All these posts, you know, we added it. And it's now, it's, it's called Hashtag Parasha. It's a new book, Hashtag Parasha, now in English. So were you writing all of these things on your personal social media accounts? Or were they through the, the networks that you were a part of already? No, it's my personal, of course, it's connected somehow to the places where I right. work. My private, you know, I have a Facebook page, Twitter, and I. And then we began with the daily WhatsApp. People in, in Israel, it's the most popular app. So a few like teenagers came and said to me, you know, we're there on WhatsApp all day. Can we open like a WhatsApp group and we put your daily message there? So I said, yeah, why not? And then they filled the first group. It's like, 250 for a broadcast group, yeah. yeah. And then they opened another group and another one and another one. I can't count how many groups we have in all, Baruch Hashem, in five languages. People take it. They're all volunteers. They translate it into five languages every morning. Of course, it's translated into English, but we're volunteers in Germany and it's translated in Portuguese and French and Spanish. And it's like, I, I can't control. I don't know what people are doing with any anymore. And I'm glad that it's, it's free. It's there. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's for everybody. So, and then um, I did a weekly shiur, a weekly talk about the parasha, like a weekly lecture. To who and, it, and where? Uh, here in Jerusalem, we have a weekly event here every Wednesday night, King George Street at nine. You're more than welcome. It's uh, called Heichal Shlomo. Oh, okay. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. We have 700 people every week. And we're also, it's also live YouTube, Facebook. So, I saw people are interested, you know, they want to hear about the parasha and about the news together to try to combine the headlines and the ancient headlines. And again, it, it became popular. And it, this shiur, for example, today, I'm going to give it in a kibbutz in the south, kibbutz Negba here in Israel. Very secular place, I think. I don't know them yet. Tomorrow it's going to be here in Jerusalem. And then in another place, it's it. So it became, again, people want to, want to hear about it. And I didn't really plan, you know, there's no strategy here to, to do something, but I see people are very interested. So I do it because I like it and I, I love the fact other people like it too, you know. What do you think is so popular and unique about the classes that you're giving? Uh, because I have read in many places that, like you said, hundreds of people coming. I mean, I'm sure you have amazing content, but they're, you know, they, they say the joke in Jerusalem, if you throw a rock, you have a one in two chance to hit a rabbi. Right? There's so many teachers of, of Torah and so many scholars and so many classes in Jerusalem and around Israel. What's touching people about your class? Are you combining uh, news and, and sort of explaining current events through the prism of the Parsha? What, what is it that's touching people about this 
particular class? Okay, maybe it's the low level because I do, <laughs> I really, I am not a Robertson and I'm not, you know, such a scholar. I just try to, as a journalist, and we're all used to that, to the media, I try as a journalist to look at the parasha or the holidays, the chagim that are coming. And sometimes, you know, I was asked, who's the audience? So I say, me, I'm doing a shiur for me in order that I will know new things. So I am a mother, I have five kids, I'm a wife, I work as a journalist. So the level is very low. I, I want to teach me new things while I'm doing a lot of other things, you know, in the schedule. So, and most of the people that are coming, it's not all midday chachomim, okay? They're not scholars. Most of us are like regular students, uh, youth, and people just want to know a little bit more. And I want to make it very, very accessible. I saw a lot of people, they lecture and they want to uh, look very intellectual. So they give you all these quotes and notes and hard words. And it's so complicated. I'm trying to make it as accessible as I can because I want people to understand some of the people that sit in front of me that are just like me in the age of 15. They know nothing and they know what the media te teaches them. So I want them to know the basic elements of Judaism. And we're doing another thing in our shiurim. People are very active. I mean, almost every week, I read a post or email that I got from our listeners all over the world. Fascinating stories. New immigrants and all kinds of singles, men and women still didn't find their other half. And mothers and grandmothers. And we're, we're, you know, they send it to me. I get a few dozens of, of these emails every week and I choose. So they're active and they want to know, you know, it's the, they want to see what's going on in this field. It's not a regular shiur Torah, you know. I want it to be interesting for me, first of all. I'm curious. It sounds like, like this is amazing, positive impact. Has there been any negative reaction, though, from the larger public saying, you know, keep religion out of the public sphere or stop talking, just give me the news, give me, you know, people, the bitterness and, and the hostility. Has any of that surfaced through? And social media is not known for its calm <laughs> and, and rational discourse. You know, yeah. So people, people angry on social media at all. Yeah, they're always angry there. But in Israel, the conflict or the main dispute, you know, the main agreement is when you speak about the left and right positions, left wing, right wing, you know, politics. I'm not there. Most of the energy, most of the journalists, they also did what I do, did. I mean, they are not objective anymore. They really, they still cover the news. They, they try to be honest. But you know what they think because of this new area, new, new time of, of new media. So you know what they think. But they spent most of the energy on this issue. It's an important one, but I felt I don't want to go there. I have nothing to say there. You know, I have my opinions, but I don't want to fight with people from the left wing all day. I can do it all day. There are people that are much better. It's not my job. It's not my mission. So I went somewhere else. You know, we say every week when Shabbos comes, we say there's a, a famous song called Lechadodi. We say it on Friday night when the beginning, the first moments of Shabbos. And we say that like a verse, like a sentence. We say, Yamin It means to break these left-right-wing positions and to be more open. So I know it's important, but we can't focus only on this political question for decades. I mean, it's crazy. Let's speak about Shabbat. Why, why Shabbat is not like a normal subject? You know, why nobody's speaking about it? So... I did find like my niche, you know, my, my corner. That's what I do. 
of course, some of the people get mad. Yeah, it's okay. My husband's uh, teaching me how to remain, you know, calm and breathe, <laughs> breathe, although someone very mean wrote something very cruel about me. Okay. I did have, like, here in Israel, there's like, a, I know you have Saturday Night Live. We have a different show called Eretz Nehederet. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, again, a Saturday show, and they imitate people. So a few weeks ago, they imitated me. Oh, I have to see that. <laughs> yeah. did, did they do a good job? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very cool, very, very funny. And they did, like, this lady that is coming everywhere, and she must speak about the parasha. Now, it has nothing to do with what's going on. She's crazy. <laughs> And she keeps like uh, telling people about how our unity is very important. And these are my messages. And people are like killing each other. But I'm there speaking about <laughs> parasha and unity. And it was very, very nice. They even spoke about the real parasha. I mean, in Eretz Nederet, they spoke about what's the real portion we read in the Torah this week. So yeah, it, it happened. They did it like a few times. And people thought I'm insulted. And I was, it, it was so flattering to see this uh, type imitating me. So I don't see it as criticism. It's, a, right. it's flattering, you know. <laughs> they think it's, it's important. Right. I and mean, it sounds like they were trying to say that you were being maybe naive about what's really going on and that the fights are deeper and more entrenched. Yeah, yeah. I understand what they wanted to say. And maybe, they, maybe it's true. I mean, <laughs> we saw it with the kids. They said how I use my babysitters as items, you know, how I, uh, every babysitter became part of the shiur and I talk about my kids, how my kids are proud of my career. And it's very funny. And okay, yeah, you know, it's a good, I, I, <laughs> I laughed a lot. And yeah, they touched the right points, you know, about what I do. Of course, they made it more extreme, but <laughs> I liked it. It's interesting because I, w- I wanted to ask you, it sounds like unity, as you mentioned, is a very prominent theme in your life and in your work. And it's something that you know resonates with me a lot. There is such fractured reality in Israel. There is such fissure there. What is your strategy? What is your approach to trying to repair those divides? Is it simply by just having these meaningful conversations in lots of different diverse locations? Is there something that you believe that can be done, not just by you, but by all of the people that are listening to you? to try to create more harmony uh, in Israel? Yeah, of course. Um, the Lubavitcher Rebbe once said, it's a famous sentence, he said it to a bar mitzvah boy that came to him and he wanted him to give him a bracha, like to bless him for the bar mitzvah. So the Rebbe blessed the kid. And then the kid asked, can the Rebbe bless my baseball team? And the Rebbe laughed and blessed the baseball team. But then the Rebbe said to this kid, listen, in real life, don't be a fan, be a player. Okay, you can be a fan, you know, love the Mets, love the Yankees, I don't know. But in real life, don't be a fan. Don't just sit there, you know, in the side and watch the team playing and just say what you think or shout what you think or curse, you know, or, or say, oh, no, this, the, the players are not good. The coach, the, the manager, the... don't just sit there as a fan, be a player. When it comes to Judaism, you have to go down to the field and take responsibility and act because you have responsibility about the result. You're part of the team. You're not a fan. So I took this sentence, don't be a fan, be a player, and I use it a lot. First of all, when I try to take responsibility, but I think all of us, each and every Jew, each and every person must do it, you know, in the fields that are close to his life. The easiest thing is to be a fan, by the way, all the social media world is making us fans because we just sit there, you know, Doing like is not enough or sharing something. That's not being active. So 
I tell my audience, you know, tonight in this kibbutz, I will tell them, okay, the media is telling you Judaism is uh, this and this and this. But if you do care about it, you go and learn it and teach it. And, and first of all, know it from firsthand, just read and write and, and be aware to this treasure. And I think wonderful things will happen if the, here the Israeli society will decide to do it all together. I don't know what's going to happen, you know, where 8 million people, so 8 million journeys will start and we will, something new will happen here. I think a uh, new culture, a new, new atmosphere, new spirit. Yeah. A very hopeful message. Sivan, you're, you're still young. And uh, just in closing, I want to know, you know, what are some of the plans you have for the future? Again, 36 years old, God willing, you have another almost 90 years of, uh, of work <laughs> left in you. Of course, you can't predict and know exactly what's going to happen. But are there some projects, some ideas, some initiatives that you would love to pursue that you sort of see coming on the horizon? Do you see yourself sticking with the mainstream journalism that you've been doing, the anchoring and the newscasting, uh, the writing? Are there new vistas that you'd like to explore in the near future? Okay, first of all, in the new future, I want to interview you because I think it's very rare for 45 minutes I've been answering questions. People here in Israel will think it's crazy. I'm not asking no I mean, it's, uh, I'm not asking anything. So it sounds interesting sometime, maybe when you're in Israel. Anytime. <laughs> your story. But uh, to really to conclude, to summarize, I do think I want to do, I, I heard a very nice answer once. A doctor was, was like a, interviewed i think he is i don't know where he studied medicine here in israel and he's a doctor and they asked him what are your plans and he said my plans i want to do exactly what i do but i want to do it better so i love what i do i want to be more professional and more effective and do it better that's the plan plus of course raising my, my kids my family raising myself my husband learning more maybe reaching a, a higher level as i said earlier it's just the first level of, of torah of judaism there are a lot of depths in there. I respect people that can really learn for hours, for days, for years, okay? I'm just superficial and very, it's very shallow. I want to be, to know more and then to teach more. Plus, I do have uh, a plan. We will start it in Israel soon. We call it the sanity plan. It has a lot to do with this new media, media world and how can we control it and use these tools in not letting them to use us. So it's something I plan with Channel 2. I hope to, maybe next interview, I can reveal more details, but that's one mission. I, I really dream to do it. I think it has a lot to do with Judaism, you know, making us more focused and more concentrated. It's also a Jewish mission. So we're working on it. <laughs> Beautiful. Sivan Rahavmir, tell everyone how they can access so much of your content. Where do people go to, to, get, to join a, a WhatsApp group to see uh, your Shior online? Like, what's, is there a central hub online where they can find out about all of the amazing things you're doing? Okay, I hope we will have a site in a few weeks. That's one of the plans I didn't okay. mention. But you can just Google my name in Hebrew or in English and find my Facebook page. Everything's there. English Facebook page every day. We have the messages there. Hebrew Facebook page. And of course, the new book, Hashtag Parasha, is available, I think, everywhere, on Amazon, and you can, you can find it. Wonderful. Sivan Ravir, media personality, Jewish personality, and a synthesizer of the two in the most beautiful way. Thank, Thank you, you so, for so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. 
This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.